The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Take your copy of God's Word, please, this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. While you're turning there, I'm going to apologize for my voice. I'm not sick. Uh, I have allergies, and uh, I've been... uh, having problems all week long with my throat and my nose. And uh, hopefully once uh, this uh, part of the season gets over, it'll be over with. But, uh, uh, you know, back when it was cold, we complained about the cold, but we didn't have all the stuff in the air to give us allergies. So uh, I guess we'll have to take uh, what this comes with since it is getting warmer. Uh, At least it has been this past week. Uh, When you find 2 Corinthians 8, join me in standing, please, as we show our respect for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read... Verses 8 through 15 of 2 Corinthians. This is the word of the living God. I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now I am giving an opinion on this because it is profitable for you who a year ago began not only to do something but also to desire it. But now finish the task as well, that just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may also be a completion from what you have. For if the eagerness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so their abundance may also become available for our need, so there may be equality. As it has been written, the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little." May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. I don't know if you've thought about it or not. We'll be began talking about finishing strong in stewardship uh, about four weeks ago. And we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I told you at that time, uh, to me, the greatest chapter on the resurrection in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15. You go back a couple of chapters before that, the greatest chapter in the Bible on love, 1 Corinthians 13. And now we come in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul is still talking about the offering. Now, there's a reason for that. Uh, The Corinthian church was the most troubled church in the Bible. You won't find any other church that had the problems that Corinth did. Uh, There were factions in the church. Uh, There were people that uh, some of them said, we like Paul, and others said, we like Apollos, and some of them said, we like Simon Peter. And then there was especially... uh, group that considered themselves to be pious, and they said, oh, we only follow Jesus in our group. Uh, And they had problems in the way they did the Lord's Supper. They had problems with sin in the church. They had problems with spiritual gifts in the church. The things that God had wanted to be a blessing to the church had become a stumbling block to the church at Corinth. And obviously, they had a problem with the offering. In fact, 
Uh, some Bible commentators believe Paul may have written as many as five letters to the church at Corinth. They're contained in what we know as First and Second Corinthians. And if you study some of those scholars, they'll tell you where they think the divisions of these letters are. The amazing thing is that in almost every one of them, Paul has to address about the offering. And again, this is not the tithe. This is the offering that they were taking to help the church in Jerusalem, which had gone through a famine and it was very poor and people there were starving to death. And Paul was telling them, you need to finish this now and we need to take the gift to Jerusalem. And so as he reminds them about that, I would remind you what John MacArthur said about giving. He said, giving like everything else the church does should be done to the glory of God. Now, a few minutes ago, the choir was singing a beautiful song and, uh, and people were being filled with the Spirit and people were being demonstrative. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's praise. And we ought to love praise. In fact, uh, if you think we have good praise here, you ought to wait till you get to heaven. I mean, this is what this is. This is a warm up for heaven. And uh, when you get to heaven, you're going to hear praise like you've never heard it before. You're going to hear angel voices, and you're going to hear the voices of all the saints of all time. And we're going to be praising God in a cacophony of, of praise in, in heaven. And that's wonderful. But I want to tell you, stewardship is just as important as praise. You see, everything the church does waits on stewardship. And stewardship waits on us. And Paul was telling the church at Corinth, you need to give to the glory of God to help your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so he gives them this example. Uh, years ago when I was a teenager, I remember watching the news one night and President Lyndon Johnson came on the news and he said, I want you to know that today in America we have declared war on poverty. And uh, my daddy was watching that program, and uh, he said, I sure am glad that the president has decided to declare war on poverty because I've been fighting it all my life. And uh, some of us feel that way. Uh, and, and we're still, I want to tell you, we didn't learn our lessons back then. If the folks that were alive back then saw the national debt today, they would probably faint for fear of what's going to happen to our country. But in those days, Lyndon Johnson developed an anti-poverty program, and it didn't work. But I want to tell you this, God's anti-poverty program works every time. Because it's not based on what we do, it's based on what God has done for us. And it's very, it's very obvious right here. Uh, Jim Miner asked me this morning, said, well, does your sermon alliterate? Jim likes it when I alliterate. And I said, well, Jim, I couldn't get it to alliterate except for the last point. But I said, it's right there in the text. I just love it when the text just preaches itself. And really, that's what's going to happen this morning. This text is going to preach itself because it is so simple. Notice the Bible says Christ was rich. In, in Corinthians, it says he was rich. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has always been God the Son. There was never a time when God didn't exist as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't explain that to you. I can't tell you how God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons but one Godhead, but you have to accept that by faith. The word Trinity is never found in the Bible, 
but the Trinity is alluded to all through the Bible. In fact, when I baptize people, I still baptize people. Brother Paul, the way I started doing it in 1971 when I became a pastor, I baptized them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I know most people now when they baptize, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, but I like the old King James language, and I still use it for baptism. Uh, but as we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we need to understand we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God revealed in three persons. In fact, God in the Old Testament, the Father dealt with the Jews. In the New Testament, we see Jesus coming to establish the church. And after Jesus established the church, he said, I'm going away. And when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. And Jim Symbola pointed this out a few weeks ago in our evangelism conference. If you want to deal with God today, you have to deal with God through the Holy Spirit because that is the person of God who is on the earth active today. There was a time in the Old Testament, God himself appeared to Moses. And then in the New Testament, Jesus came. And then now in the New Testament era, since the birth of the church in Acts, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so as we look at this, it's very prevalent. Paul says he was rich. Now, what was he rich in? Well, I could say he was rich in owning everything. He owns everything. The Bible says that. The Bible says without him was not anything made that was made. And by the way, you think you own something? What did you bring into the world? Nothing. What are you going to take away from the world? Nothing. What we're to do is when God gives us things while we're here, we're to use it for the glory of God. This church needs to use everything we have for the glory of God. Brother Paul, when you take the senior adults to, to New Orleans today, you need to do that to the glory of God. Brian, when the deacons meet tomorrow night to, to talk about the things that the deacons have to do in the future, uh, and, and I, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but uh, we know that when, when I retire, the deacons are responsible for having the pulpit filled. And they're going to meet about that tomorrow night and talk about that. Uh, nothing secretive. I hadn't revealed any secrets. I just said that's what they're going to meet on. It needs to be done. to the When the deacons meet, they need to meet to the glory of God. Uh, Brian, when you go uh, to Africa this week, you need to go to the glory of God. Paul and, and Brother Phil need to go to the glory of God to Peru. Everything we do, whether it's serving in the nursery, whether it's having a, an evangelistic event, whether it's taking up the offering, needs to be done to the glory of God. Jesus was rich. He owned everything. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of angels in heaven waiting to do his bidding. He had need of nothing. He was rich. But notice, first of all, he was rich in grace. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he was rich in grace? You know, every one of us needs God's grace. There's not a person here today that doesn't need God's grace. And the wonderful thing is this, there's not a person here today that God would not be gracious to if you'll seek after him. You've got to seek the Lord while he may be found. You know what grace is? I love this definition of grace. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. You know, my daddy used to give me what I deserved and I didn't like it because it was a whipping. You say, well, you deserved it. I sure did. I didn't like it, but I deserved it. 
And you know, all of us are sinners. There's not a righteous person in this church, including the one standing in the pulpit talking. But Christ was rich in grace. He wanted to give us something that we didn't deserve. I don't deserve going to heaven. I don't deserve the blessings of life here on earth. I, I don't deserve living in victory over sin, hell, and death. I don't deserve any of that. But grace gives it to me. And Christ was rich in grace. Not only was he rich in grace, he's rich in mercy. Notice that Paul said to the Ephesian church, but God who is rich in mercy. Now, mercy is kind of the opposite of grace. Grace gives us what we don't deserve, but mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's a great definition of mercy. Because of God's mercy, I'm, mercy, I'm not going to hell. Because of God's mercy, I'm not lost forever. Because of God's mercy, I'm a child of the King. And so Christ was rich in grace and rich in mercy. But then also Ephesians 2.4 reminds us that he was rich in love. And that word love is the word agape. It's the highest kind of love. I hope you love God today because God loves you. In fact, God agapes you. He loves you with the highest love. You know, sometimes people say, well, I love God. But I don't love the church. Better be careful. You better be careful. What does the Bible say about Christ and the church? In talking to husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think we ought to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church. And some of you say, Oh, I love my church. I, I, I love my church until they sing a song I don't like. I, I, I love my church until I come in and some guest is sitting in my pew. I love my church unless somebody gets my parking place and it's raining and I had to get wet. You know, when I got up this morning, I saw the rain. And the old devil said, yeah, it's raining and it's spring break. And I said, that's all right. There'll be people at church today who want to have a divine appointment. You made a special effort to get here. Rainy, you made a very special effort to get here. When you see somebody in a wheelchair, somebody with a cane, somebody with a walker, and they come out in weather like this, that is a testimony. They love the church because they love Jesus. But Jesus was rich in love. And you may be here today and you may feel like God doesn't love you. Let me remind you that your feelings are the shallowest part of your being. Uh, every now and then, I get up and I don't feel good. And if I don't feel good, I usually go to the doctor to see if he can help me feel better. I didn't go this week because I knew what it was. It was allergies and sinus. And he was going to say, well, you have allergies and sinus. And so I said, well, I know what to do about that. Drink plenty of water and take some antihistamines and things like that. I got up this morning and I made myself a, a Baptist preacher drink. I got up and took my Lipton tea and made me a cup of hot tea and put some honey and lime juice and, and, a, and a Hall's cough drop in it and let it dissolve and I drank it. And I want to tell you, did it taste good? No. Was it good for me? Yes, that's why I did it. But you know, my feelings are so shallow. 
And let me tell you this, some of you came in here and you're, it's a drab, dreary day. I think, can I tell you that if we don't have rain, you won't have flowers? If we don't have rain, you won't have food? That, that'll make you think twice. If it doesn't rain, we won't eat. Thank God. And I never have understood why a Baptist who's been under the water would have trouble with a little water on him. Even though it is sprinkled and not poured on us, I, I, and sometimes I guess it could be poured. But God loves every one of us. If you're here today, and some of y'all have gotten bad news this week. I know that. I know that. Some of you have heard heartbreaking stories. I saw on the news the other night where a college student came to Gulf Shores for spring break and was killed in a hit-and-run accident. And later they found the driver, and he was drunk. And I thought, what a horrible thing. I told Mary last night as we watched that story, I said, How? your phone rings at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And your child is on a vacation trip to the Gulf Coast. And you hear she won't be coming home. Horrible things happen. But I want to tell you this. Even when horrible things happen, God loves you with an everlasting love. Christ was rich. But then notice Paul says, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor. I love it. And why did he become poor? For your sake. You know why Jesus left heaven? For you. You say, well, preacher, didn't he leave heaven for you? Certainly he did. But I want you to know Jesus left heaven for all of us. He didn't have to. He could have said no. But he said yes to come to earth. And he knew what would happen to him on earth. By the way, don't think that Jesus did not know what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem in 33 A.D. He knew exactly what was going to happen. It had been planned from eternity past. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And he came to fulfill his role in redemption. He became poor for our sake. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. How did he become poor? Two ways. One way we know he was poor is he didn't own anything. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When he was born, they had to borrow a manger. When he lived, he would walk through fields and people would leave wheat in the fields and he and the disciples would take their hands and they would take that golden wheat and they would harvest that wheat and they would take their hands and rub them together like this and then they would take the grains that were left and they'd blow the chaff off of the wheat and they would take that wheat and eat that wheat in its, in its form without being ground into flour, without making bread. That's what they lived on. When he had to pay his temple tax, uh, somebody asked Peter, well, does your master pay temple tax? And he said, why, sure. Uh, Peter again, he didn't know whether he paid temple tax or not. He just opened his big mouth and said, sure. And Jesus said, why should I pay temple tax when my father owns the temple? And he said, but nevertheless, Peter, because you've already said that, go down there and catch a fish. There was only one fish in the Sea of Galilee that could bite a hook. And what do you think the chances are of throwing out a line and catching a fish with a coin in his mouth? I'll tell you what they were, one in one, if Jesus told you to go get it. And that fish was swimming around there thinking, why in the world I have this coin in my mouth? 
And all of a sudden, he saw something. He said, I'm going to eat that and grab that hook. And old Peter pulled him up on shore, reached in, and got the coin. You say, well, did he catch and release? I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But it does tell us that Peter took that coin and went and paid Jesus' temple tax, even though Jesus said, why should I pay temple tax? My father owns the temple. But he didn't own anything. He had a robe that was seamless that had been given to him. And while he was on the cross, the Roman soldiers gambled for the only possession he had. He was so very poor. But let me tell you this. Not only was he poor financially, he was willing to give up his exalted status to come and die for us. Notice when he became poor. Instead, he emptied himself. The word emptied there means literally to pour out. To pour out. He poured out himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The Bible said, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And yet Jesus took that curse. He was poor because he didn't have anything. He didn't own possessions. And you know what happens when we own possessions? Sometimes they end up owning us. Sometimes our possessions are more precious to us than our relationship with God. Sometimes our possessions are more precious to us than our relationship to our families. Some people used to say, oh, make all the money you can. Adrian Rogers said that's a wrong statement. Because he said if you make all the money you can, you'll be making money when you should be spending time with your family. You'll be making money when you should be in church. You'll be making money when you should go on a mission trip. I want to tell you, life does not consist with the abundance of things. Jesus became poor. I love what it says in Hebrews. I'm sitting in on Mary's class on Sunday night. It's an, in, it's an inductive Bible study. And they have sheets, and you're supposed to draw on the sheets. And I told Mary, I'm auditing the class. And she said, what do you mean you're auditing the class? I said, I'm not going to draw on the sheets. And she said, why are you going to do that? I said, because I've already studied it in, in, in Greek in seminary. And I said, I don't want to draw pictures on sheets. But I want to tell you, there's a lot of things in Hebrews that you could glean if you draw pictures on those sheets. Notice what it says. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, now this is what Jesus said to the Father. You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. When we were... In Israel, we walked again into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a video on, on uh, Facebook where we sang the Lord's Prayer after we visited the Garden of Gethsemane. And Hank Irwin came up to me with a camera and he said, well, I might just say a word about the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I started to say a word, I broke down. Because I could see Jesus kneeling in the garden. I could see Jesus 
with great drops of blood pouring from his forehead as he agonized in prayer, as he said these words, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the heavens were silent. Not a word was said. When Abraham put Isaac on an altar, God said, don't kill him. I was just testing you. But when God's son came to the garden of Gethsemane and said, my father, if it be possible, God did not answer one word because there was no other way. Oh, friend, don't misunderstand this. Some people say, well, there are many ways to get to heaven. That is a lie. Some people say, oh, well, everybody's going to go to heaven. That's a lie. When you go to heaven, you come by the way of the cross. If you don't come by the way of the cross, you don't get into heaven. When you go in front of the pearly gates and a voice cries out, why should we open the gates and let you in? If you say, well, because I was a member of First Baptist Pelham, the gate's not going to open. Well, because Brother Mike Shaw was my pastor, the gate's not going to open. You say, I went on a mission trip. The gate's not going to open. I'll tell you this. You get up there and you say, I have come by the way of the cross. And the gate swings open. And you start hearing the angels sing and the saints sing because that's the only way to get in. Jesus came and had a body and he sacrificed it on the cross for us. So Christ was rich and Christ became poor. And don't miss this. And especially don't miss this if you've had a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. How do we become rich? First of all, we become rich in righteousness. As Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, I think the most important verse in the Sermon on the Mount is this verse. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. He had talked in the Sermon on the Mount about people saying, well, what are we going to eat, and what are we going to drink, and what are we going to wear? Ladies, have you ever said, I don't have anything to wear? Jesus was talking about you in the Sermon on the Mount. Guys, we ever planned any trips? You know, yeah, I want to go to the NASCAR. I want to go to the football game. I think Paul hit the football game pretty good lick last week, what I hear. I want to, what if it's not God's will for us to do that? He said, seek first. In other words, make your first priority seeking the kingdom of God. Is that your first priority here today? I hope so. Notice what Isaiah said. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. When God looks at us, he does not want to see our sins. He wants to see the righteousness of God in Christ wrapped around and clothed around every one of us. Are you rich in righteousness today? But also we're rich in relationships. Romans 12, 5 says, in the same way. And you remember what Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies acceptable to God. Last part of that passage says, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
I didn't play hooky last Sunday. I went to homecoming. I hadn't been to homecoming in 25 years. 25 years ago, I was 40 years old. I'd been pastor here 10 years. I got a call from Brother Don Graham, First Baptist Center Point. He said, Mike, you're one of Brother Phil's preacher boys. We want you to come back and preach. We're having the 75th anniversary of the church. And I went over to the library at Samford and I did some research and I found out all the statistics that the church had done in the first 75 years. And I used that in my message. I didn't just get up and quote a bunch of statistics. But some of it was pretty meaningful because about the first 50 years of the church, they didn't do a whole lot for the kingdom. But then they realized that God's call was a call to go and serve, and they started getting involved in missions. And they've done mission trips all over the world, built churches all over the world. And so last year, I got a call from the lady who was in charge of the celebration. And she said, Brother Mike, we want you to come back and preach at the 100th anniversary of the church. I was excited. I was honored to be asked. I put something about it on Facebook, and my good friend Ted Trailer said, it's always good when the founding pastor can go back to the church on the 100th anniversary. Ted Trailer is a smart aleck. I love him, but he's a smart aleck. But you know, I went back there last Sunday, and I want to tell you, when I walked into the sanctuary, I didn't know what it would look like because I was on the staff when they built that sanctuary in 1968 and 69. I was there on opening day when we had standing room only. I didn't have to stand. I was sitting in the choir. I had a good seat. By the way, that's the way to get a seat, Paula. If you got standing room only, we always got seats in the choir, all right? That's a good way to get you a seat. It, 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 if it gets crowded, you can always get in the choir. But you know what I thought about last Sunday? I thought about all the relationships I'd had. Four, the four men who had more to do with my life, my father, my father-in-law, Brother Ralph Field, and Brother Jack Lemon were all a part of that church when I was a college student at Samford. And I looked at people that had known me. Some of them know, had known me nearly all my life. And let me tell you what was so precious. I was walking through the line, got there early. In fact, we left before I normally preach here to get to center point because Mary didn't want to miss anything. And we got there and they said, there's a little room over here with refreshments in it. So I went to get me some refreshments. While I was getting my refreshments, a lady came up to me and she said, you remember how your mom and daddy got saved? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, the pastor and a deacon from West Woodlawn Baptist Church came by when my mama was expecting me and they were sitting on their front porch and the preacher and this deacon came by and they started talking to my mom and daddy and they asked them if they had the most important thing their child would need. And my daddy said, well, we think we do, but if you tell us something we need, we'll get it. And they said, this child needs a Christian home. And they asked my mom and daddy, have y'all ever been saved? Now, my mom and daddy were went to church when they were young. They believed in God. They'd heard a lot of sermons. My mother had a brother that was a Baptist preacher, but nobody had ever asked them if they'd ever been saved. You know what happened? My mother and daddy got saved on the front porch of that little house in Woodlawn. 
1948, right before I was born. The lady said, well, you're wrong about one thing. It wasn't the pastor and a deacon. It was the pastor and my brother. And my brother told me that he had the joy of leading your mom and daddy to Jesus along with the pastor. And he said he remembered that Sunday. And you know what immediately I thought of? I wouldn't be here today at First Baptist Center Point preaching this message if that preacher and that layman hadn't gone to see my mom and daddy and told them about Jesus. And folks, there are couples all over Pelham, all over Helena, all over Alabaster. And they may have homes and they may have everything for their children. They may have their children's college education already paid for. But what's going to happen to their eternal soul? That's what we need to be concerned about. Man, I'm so rich in relationships. Yeah, I went out there last week to be a blessing to them. And I want to tell you, I had had a spell. I had a spell. I'd never heard that. My daddy thought the guy was a deacon. And and she said, no, he was never a deacon. He should have been, but he never was a deacon. But he was a soul winner. Well, thank God for that. What about all the other saints I've known? You know, I've thought a lot about the 35 years I've been here. And the saints that have sat in pews here, I mean, some of y'all don't realize this. We had another church before we moved up here, a little church on, down on Church Street. And I can still see some of those people sitting in the pews. Now, Barry and Paula, y'all are in Miss Cummins' seat. I just want to tell you that. And, uh, but Miss Cummins would tell you, if you're a guest, you can sit in her seat. But if you're a backslidden Baptist that hasn't been here in 15 years, get out. That's what she'd do. <laughs> You say, didn't you try to straighten her out? I did. Never did a bit of good. She said, if it's a stranger, if it's a guest, I'm not going to say anything. But that's my seat. Back there where Harry and Polly are sitting, that would be Joe and Dolly Hodges sitting back there. We wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't for Joe Hodges. World War II vet, Marine on Iwo Jima. We started talking about moving up here. Joe Hodges said, I've always felt like we didn't have enough land. Nobody would dare speak against moving up here, when Brother Joe said, I've always thought we needed more land. And I want to tell you this. I have relationships that go back to my earliest days as a Christian, but my greatest relationship is my personal relationship with God. And if we could see each other through God's eyes, you know what God has done? God has gifted us. He's gifted us. To where if you look at the needs of this community and you look at our spiritual gifts, they go together like a hand and a glove when we're serving in the body. Because we're all part of the body of Jesus. Nobody is more important than anybody else. You say, well, you're the pastor. That's right, I have been the pastor for 35 years. But I want to tell you, you can't be a pastor if you don't have a flock. And I've had a lot of help over these years with this flock. And I'm so thankful that I'm rich in righteousness because of the Lord Jesus. I'm rich in relationships because of the church. But one day I'm going to be rich in reigning. Revelation 5.10 says this, you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. I may not look like a priest, but I am one. And I may not look like a king, but I am one. But my king is the king of kings and lord of lords. And one day, some of you say, well, I'll never get to 
go to Israel like you and Mary have done on a couple of occasions? Oh, yes, you will. I've read the Bible. In the back of the book, it says that all of us are going to reign with Christ in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The millennial reign. It answers the prayer that we pray when we say the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day will literally come and it will last a thousand years and there'll be no more war and there'll be no more sickness and there'll be no more death and there'll be no more problems. King Jesus will reign on this earth for a thousand years and we'll reign with him. You may not have a house to live in right now, but I'm going to tell you one day you'll reign in Jerusalem with King Jesus. Now what should we do in light of this? What I started off with, everything the church does, giving, serving, preaching, going on mission trips, planning churches, everything we need to do needs to be done to the glory of God. Is your life being lived to the glory of God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful word that Christ was rich and he became poor that through his poverty we might be made rich. Father, if there are people here today that need to be saved, I pray this would be the day, this would be the hour like it was for my mother and daddy back in 1948 on the porch of that little house in Woodlawn. That people will hear Jesus knocking at their heart's door. And they'll throw open that door and welcome Jesus to come in. Father, there are others who've been saved. They've never been scripturally baptized. There are others that need a church home. Father, I pray that there'd be people today who would surrender to live their life to the glory of God. Everything they do to the glory of God. And Father, may as we live our lives to the glory of God, may we lift up Jesus so that lost and dying men and women, boys and girls, will come to know him and be born again and one day reign with him for a thousand years and then spend eternity with him in the new Jerusalem. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart here today. Lord, I pray that we would sense that we're not here by accident. We're here by divine appointment. And there are things which you're speaking to our hearts that you may never speak again. So, Father, you have your will and your way in this invitation. And we'll be very careful to give Jesus all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. For it's in his name that we pray. And in his name we give this invitation. Amen. We're going to sing our invitation hymn. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.